The world's most advanced prediction technology is now available to all players. Equine Edge AI analyzes all horse racing data, track conditions, jockey trainer statistics, and a horse genetic strength to generate powerful metrics and ticket recommendations. Backed up by real-time data with Equine Edge, handicapping is simple, smart, and efficient. It takes the guesswork out of betting on horses so you can focus on enjoying the thrill of victory. Play like the pros today at equineedge.com. As part of our summer special promotion, we have an exclusive offer that is only available to In The Money Media listeners. All In The Money Media listeners who are new to Equine Edge get the service absolutely free for an entire month. Simply use promo code FREEMONEY on the account sign-up page or go directly to equineedge.com forward slash free money with Delmar and Saratoga coming up. Now is the perfect time to sign up for your free account and get familiar with this platform. Welcome to episode 104 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbeal, and today my special guest is none other than Naira's morning line maker, David Aragona. Me and David go over four races from this past Saturday at Belmont Park. Those races are six, seven, nine, and ten. And some angles that we talked about are why the odds on both O'Brien runners this weekend really mattered. And if buyers are close together, but the odds are far apart, always go with the longer shot. Me and David also talk a little bit about the opening day card at Saratoga. This is Red Board Rewind. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest for this week's Redboard Rewind. It is Naira's very own morning line maker, David Aragona. David, how are you? Doing good. It's good to come back on the podcast. Super excited to have you back on. I was trying to figure out, hmm, who can I get the week before Saratoga? Because I know everyone's going to be busy. Oh, let's pick up the morning line maker who's probably going through a stress-filled induced week. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to look forward to at Saratoga. And I was we were just talking before we started those first couple of cards. It's always a little bit of a shock to the system because you kind of get lulled into that complacency as Belmont winds down. The racing gets a little bit thinner and you just amp right back up for those first few cars at Saratoga. It's it's so weird. I, I can't think of another track where it's like this, even Gulfstream for the winter, where it's just like you just do a couple basic cards and then bam, that first couple of Saratoga. It's like. Where, why am I spending six hours on a card when I usually spend two or three? I know every year at Saratoga, it's like I've got a hangover from the first week because I'm just <laughs> not quite used to doing that much uh, handicapping and that much looking into the races, especially those two year old maiden races. I mean, for me, uh, there's a lot to dive into with all those first time starters. I think doing those first couple on Thursday's card, uh, the split divisions of the same race took me like 90 minutes just to get through both of them. So uh, it's fun. I mean, I love doing it. The handicapping process is one of the most fun parts of, uh, of this game, but uh there's a lot to go through. Well, I mean, and not obviously it's going to be the Belmont podcast, but just to get into a couple of those races too, it's just, you look through the trainer stats, Asmussen, uh, McPeak and motion in that first, that the race number two, they're all like terrific with two year olds. I'm like, where do I even go in this race? I guess I'm going to go with Asmussen cause he's got the one race, but I mean, it's just like, where's the easy Belmont race? Where, where, where are those again? 
I know, especially with these two-year-old races, they've just kind of saved all the good ones for Saratoga, and it seems like that's been the pattern for the past two years now, because the two-year-old races we saw at Belmont were just not that deep. It was pretty clear, you know, who the contenders were, who were kind of just in there as filler, and these races are just so much deeper, and there's a lot to go through, and you do have a couple of those horses that have starts under their belts that look like they have ability, but there are also some live-looking first-time starters in there, so I'll be interested to see how those shake out on the racetrack. And I think it's always interesting just between always the first time starter talk and horses that have experience, everyone, you know, tends to think it's always better to have experience. And usually it is, but a lot of times at Saratoga, I feel like first time starters win above their average. I think it's supposed to be like one eleven, usually maybe two out of 15 or so win as first time starters. And I feel like a lot of times, I guess, because especially in the two year olds, there's not many that have raced. We do get a lot of those good first time starters that win. Yeah, and I think that makes sense. I mean, you got a lot of connections that are saving their best bullets for Saratoga, and some of the ones that we see start at Belmont or start a little bit earlier in the spring at Churchill or Keeneland are not necessarily the best two-year-olds in their respective barns, so they kind of get usurped when those first-time starters begin their careers in July and August. Let's kind of switch back over to this weekend from Belmont. Obviously, it was a wet one. How hard is it for you when you're making these morning lines and you just see oh, it's going to be a torrential downpour that day. Does that kind of add into, because obviously you're trying to figure out what the public's going to do, but with the rain and the scratches, I can imagine it's just kind of a mind, mind bender at that point. Yeah, it's really tough, especially with turf racing. I think it's hard to take track condition into account too much because in this country, you so rarely get situations where horses compile a meaningful record on yielding in soft courses. So it's hard to really know who's going to handle it. And some soft turf courses can be very different from others at different venues. And the labeling can be all over the place at times. Uh, each track has different standards for what they consider yielding or good or firm. So I typically don't take that into account too much with the turf races. Obviously, with the dirt racing, you know, wet track form is something that a lot of handicappers put stock in. So you can factor that in a little bit. If a horse is a real wet track specialist on the dirt, you can knock their price down a little bit if it seems certain that there's going to be some rain in the forecast. But the turf racing, it's kind of hard to predict at times. For me, for wet track, I've always been a Munnings and Spitestown fan, obviously being the son of Spitestown. And I feel like a lot of times when you look in, I, formulator is obviously the best tool for it it's to find, you know, sometimes you see these horses have you know 26 percent as a sire fee for or a sire percentage for wet track and it's like i don't even know who this horse is yeah, it's tough sometimes to look at statistics for wet tracks. I mean, you're always going to have statistics, uh, stats go up a little bit uh, on uh, wet tracks because you just typically get smaller fields, especially in off-the-turf races when the track is wet. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you do have certain influences that seem that they really do get horses that handle the slop well. Uh, you know, Spidestown and Munnings are good ones. I've seen Street Sense cited as one. Uh, there are a few sires that seem to do well on wet tracks, but, uh, you know, you do have to look at the horse's individual PP because typically you will get runners that have form with uh, on prior wet tracks. And I like to look specifically at tracks that are sealed because sometimes you've got a difference between how horses mm -hmm. run on sealed racetracks as opposed to harrowed tracks. That seems to make a difference with a lot of horses. But uh, you do have a little bit more evidence to go on when you're looking at those dirt races. And something, obviously, uh, you working with Andy Sterling that Andy has taught me over the years is, you know, if they both have run 80s on wet and dry, they they like both surfaces. Like, I think for him it matters if, like, one runs a 75 and then the, the best highest for a dry track is, like, a 48. Yeah, then they probably like the wet track a little bit more. And I think that's a big deal. And a lot of people, they just look at the Tomlinson numbers and they go, okay, 440 for the Tomlinson. Must, absolutely, he must be a mudlark. And the horse runs dead last and they get mad. They're like, oh, bad ride. The, the horse must not really, like, it's 
every explanation under the sun that they can figure figure out why his horse didn't run well. And sometimes, you know, the 440 just, it says the horse should run well. Who knows? Could have been the trip. And maybe sometimes they just don't like the mud. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm not supposed to say this as a daily racing form employee, but I personally don't put any uh, stock in the Tomlinson numbers. Mm -hmm. I don't find them to be useful for me personally. Um, But uh, yeah, I I think sometimes when you look at those traditional past performances and you see the wet track record up in the upper right-hand corner, you can just really emphasize if a horse has won on a wet track or not. And sometimes you have to look a little bit deeper to really get a sense of whether a horse likes it or not. A horse could have won a couple times on a wet track and actually have run some of its lower speed figures on wet tracks so i like to look at when the horse actually tried the track and some of the surrounding races to see if its form went up or down when it tried the wet track in the past we had some big big time european horses come over and obviously we'll talk about them in these races but just when you kind of see that these horses come over is it just the quick inclination just be like okay they're european they're obviously going to like the wet track more or have you come to notice that it almost doesn't matter anymore because the kind of price gets baked into it because everyone else just thinks that way Um, it's a tough call. I mean, it depends on who the connections are, I think, and what the intention is coming over. Generally, the European horses have run over courses with way more given them than the American horses have because, you know, courses that are rating yielding and soft over in Europe are courses that we probably wouldn't even run over over here. They would take those races off the turf or cancel the races altogether. uh, And and they'll just run over really bottomless ground in Europe. So you will have some horses that have tried very soft going that they probably are not going to encounter over here. So they're always almost getting on somewhat firmer ground when they come to the United States. And uh, you do have horses with those European pedigrees that typically are a little bit lighter framed and they just can get over some heavier going better than their American counterparts in many cases. There are certain situations where horses are coming to the U.S. to get firm ground. They've shown in Europe that they really need some hard, fast ground and they'll get that over here. So maybe that's the intention for coming to America. Uh, But generally, they're more equipped to handle any type of going than uh, the American horses. Let's move in to the first of our four races today. Race number six from Belmont Park from this past Saturday was a state-bred N1X allowance. Seven furlongs on the turf. What you like in here? Well, I picked the favorite in this race, Dr. Blute, and it was one of those situations where he had the, tr- the kind of trip in his prior turf race that you really couldn't miss. I mean, it was noted in the comment line. It's something that a lot of people highlighted right after the race. I do a Horses to Watch segment uh, video where I recap some trips every week uh, on the Daily Racing Form YouTube channel, and I highlighted this horse, and I'm sure a lot of people were looking to bet this horse back on the turf when he returned. And sometimes you get these universal trip horses that everybody's on, and they come back and almost get overhyped a little bit, and mm-hmm. I think that was the situation with Dr. Blute, because Sure, he had run great in his prior turf start, and it probably did make him the horse to beat. Did it make him a 9-5 to kind of favorite against a pretty competitive New York bred field? I guess that's debatable. And then you throw in that added curveball of running it over a wet turf course when his prior uh, turf attempt had come over a Uh, Of course, that was labeled good, but was much firmer. Uh, So that just was another bit of uncertainty to throw in for the favorite, Dr. Blute. And, uh, you know, I I struggled with it a little bit because you you kind of feel like the horse is going to get over bet and you look for an alternative. Personally, though, I couldn't find one. So I ended up somewhat reluctantly picking Dr. Blute. uh, But it was just a really hard race to figure in behind him. And and these are the type of races that I I tend to love because – a real quick, easy thing for me to do from a class level is, okay, how many horses in the allowance 
races that have raced, you know, five or six times and missed, even if they have comparable buyers that could fit in this race, I just write PL for proven loser on the top. And I say, if they beat me, then I can kind of make a whole note of the field that they lost to a proven loser. So I kind of tossed out horses like Riff Valley, another horse like bad guy. And obviously these horses are longer priced horses. And just looking through, I thought number three, Scosatori for Chris Englehart, the, the last couple races, I mean, the, the 82 back in the, in the starter allowance, I mean, I thought fit just as good as the Dr. Blute race, with, which we know had a bad trip in it. So, okay, maybe upgrade that horse to an 84. I mean, this one's only four points behind. And I kept good form by running that, you know, third in the allowance. I obviously had dropped the buyer, but had been up on a fast pace. So it's kind of a give and take. You know, what can you do? And when I looked at the prices and I saw Dr. Blute under 2-1, to one, I saw this one at 5-1, to one, I said, okay, can I find another possible horse that I might like in here and be able to make a two-horse Dutch win bet? And I thought the outside, I thought Chrome Chrome Dixie for Clement. Back-to-back 73s at the level. Obviously didn't improve in the last, but had known to run okay at seven furlongs. And I looked at that one. I saw 13-1. to one. I said, Clement's obviously gearing up for Saratoga, but why can't you have one here on, on the end of the day? And plus, I'm getting 13-1. to one. I just thought that these two, at least Chrome Dixie, was a little bit interesting at a price. And I thought that the difference between the favor and Scusatori was just like too big to not be pronounced and make a bet on. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you make about the relative merits of Scotchatore and Dr. Blute, because you're right. Uh, the way that the prices kind of shook out nine to five and five to one was really too big of a difference. And I kind of, in retrospect, probably misread Scotchatore a little bit because he had run that big speed figure and won a 21 to one two back. And your first inclination is to say, OK, where did that come from? That must have been something of a fluke. And he came back and lost last time. So you kind of look back and say, OK, I guess I'm not going to expect him to run back to that big performance, too back something uh circumstances just uh kind of worked out for him that day and he probably isn't quite that good but digging into the last race a little bit deeper he was part of a pretty quick pace and i guess it's tempting when a horse fades going six furlongs after contesting the pace to say oh seven furlongs today is going to be a little more difficult for him to get but that was kind of ignoring that he had rated successfully in the past so the rider eric Kinsell did have more options than just going to the front like he did last time so he's probably a horse that i underrated a little bit for me it was number three scotch atori for david is dr blute let's see if we can get their allowance victory right now and they're off number two courageous contender just walked out of the starting gate is at the back of the pack along with a bad guy out for the lead is volkert and on the inside is the favorite dr blute who is a close-up second with dan fusi racing in third as they move up the back stretch, it is Volkert who shows the way here. And on the outside is Dan Fusi, along with Hurricane Andrew. In behind is Dr. Blute, who's racing in fourth. Scotchatotti is next in fifth, followed by Chrome Dixie in sixth, three and a half lengths. Back to Saratoga Flash, who runs in seventh. Our Man Mike's on the inside in eighth. Rift Valley is next in ninth. And then comes a bad guy who was racing in 10th, and a way out of it is Courageous Contender. The quarter went in 22-2. and two. It's Volkert on the inside and Dan Fusi on the outside as Hurricane Andrew drops back. Scott Chitotti has gained on the outside, so it's three of them across. Dr. Blute just in behind in fourth. Chrome Dixie is alongside the half mile in 46 seconds as they come off the turn and enter the stretch. And here is Scott Chitotti now to take over the lead. On the outside is Saratoga Flash putting in a late run along with Chrome Dixie. It is Scotchatori in front as they move for the 16th pole. Scotchatori on the outside. 
Here comes Chrome Dixie. Saratoga Flash is there. They come for the finish. Scotchatore by a length. And Scotchatore does get it done, paying 12 80 with a solid buyer speed figure of 82. He did run back to that last race. Chrome Dixie ends up running second, so I look really smart picking those two. Why don't I play an exacto here when I like two horses? I don't know, but that was a mistake that I will have to figure out later on. That was a pretty generous exacto price, 66 for a dollar in this field. It looked pretty competitive, so uh, I credit to you because I found it tough to come up with just two horses, but uh, they both paid nicely in this race. Chrome Dixie was a really big price at 13 to 1, considering his form, which really wasn't that far off uh, from a speed figure standpoint. A lot of the other horses that went off at shorter prices here, and I kind of alluded to it a little bit beforehand, Scotchatore, uh, he did have more options than just going to the front, and Eric Cancel from the inside post kind of made the decision that uh, horses are probably going to go to the lead from the outside i don't want to get involved in an early pace duel so i'm just going to make the decision coming right out of the starting gate to take this horse back a little bit and it ended up working out for him because the early pace of this race was on the quick side and he was able to gradually work his way into the race and the seven furlongs proved to be no problem at all it's it's so weird for me i'm sure you have some jockeys that kind of do the same thing for you for me it's always guys like dylan davis and eric Cancel that i just whenever i'm on them they don't win. Whenever I'm off them, they do win. And I feel like for Eric, too, especially this year, the, the the change with the jockey agent and all that, I mean, he is just a man on fire now, and I'm super interested. I was talking about like taking pro interesting prop bets and stuff for Saratoga. I almost wonder if maybe he can get top 10, maybe like a top six finish in the jockey standings because, I mean, when he's on, he is able to win three or four now compared to when a good day for him a couple of years ago was only two or three. Yeah, I think the way that he's riding now, getting a position in the top eight, I would say, at Saratoga seems like a realistic goal for him. And maybe even a little bit better than that if he continues to have that same confidence because he is a rider with a lot of natural ability. He's a pretty good finisher. He can have a certain versatility in the way that he rides from a tactical standpoint when he's feeling confident he's not afraid to just take the bull by the horns and go to the front end he's also not afraid to make a tactical decision like he did with Scotchatori, take him off the pace and uh, kind of read that some others are going to go in the race uh, but uh, he can suffer a little bit sometimes when the riding colony gets really tough he'll defer mm -hmm. to some more experienced riders which you do see with a lot of inexperienced guys uh, sometimes if another rider that's a hall of famer is going to the front end you don't want to tangle with him on the lead uh, but I I feel like he's gained some confidence, especially since winning that Aqueduct riding title, and it's carried through to the Belmont meet. So hopefully he can do well up at Saratoga. Let's give your quick thoughts on Dr. Blute. Obviously had the weird race two back. We had already talked about the Universal Trip Horse. Came back with a 71 this time. A lot of times people think, oh, second time turf, and they ran so well the first time. Obviously we'll see an increase. This was not to be the case with this runner. Yeah, and I guess you could uh, look back and say that there were a couple signs that maybe this horse was not going to get back to his top effort on the turf from Aqueduct. I mean, one component is that John Kimmel, his trainer, had a really strong Aqueduct meet over the winter and at Gulfstream as well. He had a really high percentage for the first three months of the year and things just kind of tanked for him at Belmont. And that's how racing can be sometimes with these stables. It can be a little bit cyclical when you have horses run through your condition. Sometimes you're out of bullets to fire when a new meet comes. And I'm sure he'll do a little bit better when we get to Saratoga. Uh, but uh, the barn just has not been firing the way that it was at Aqueduct when this horse ran his best speed figure. So that was one component. And like I was saying, this horse hadn't really been proven over a turf with real given it mm -hmm. and just didn't seem like he was that comfortable over it. He never picked up the way that he did in his first turf start. 
And I guess he's one that you could give another shot to on the turf in the future, but you'd want to get a much better price on him. I, I love the fact that you bring up, you know, certain meets, etc. Kristoff uh, was one for me earlier in the month where I think he was two for 34. And we were always saying he's just, he's just gearing up for Saratoga. And everyone knows what happened last Saratoga the first three weeks. He was... 10 or 11 wins and was leading the leading the whole column or leading the whole trainer standings. And I, I find that so interesting that people don't think about that more often that, Oh, we're coming to the end of this meet. Obviously everyone's gearing up for Saratoga. And I mean, it's, it's so different with Saratoga and Delmore. People want to just win there to win there. They, they kind of save all their bullets for, it. I, I almost wonder when we see this with Kimmel, if maybe next year at Aqueduct now I'll try to remember he had such a good, strong start to the year. Maybe he aims for that type of meet. And then also to, digress and not play him so much at Belmont. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's always so much uh, the plan for certain trainers. I think with Clement and the example that you cited, maybe that was a little bit of the case last year because he did very well with two-year-olds and they were clearly pointed to the Saratoga meet. But sometimes it's out of the barn's control and they just have horses that win at certain times and aren't ready to move up to the next condition when they run back. And it can be a little bit cyclical and you'll have peaks and valleys with the patterns in certain stables. And I think that might be what happened with a small barn like John Kimmel has. And it's natural that we're going to see him do better than the four percent win rate that he won out of Belmont, so it's got to go back in the other direction for him at some point. Let's move on to race number seven from Belmont Park. It is the Bel- Grade One Belmont Oaks Invitational, purse of seven hundred thousand one and one quarter miles on the turf. Tough race, had some imports. What'd you like in here, David? So I did not get too creative in this one. I settled on the Aiden O'Brien import Santa Barbara, who figured to be the heavy favorite in this race. Uh, I personally was not that taken with any of the American three-year-old fillies racing on the turf. Uh, the Wonder, again, came back a reasonably fast race, but I was a little bit skeptical of Cone Lima and Plum Ali. While she probably was best in that race, making a late run, I kind of wondered how much pace she'd get in this race, stretching out in distance. And Santa Barbara had just run so well in her last race and it seemed like even though these Aiden O'Brien horses typically underperform in the United States and it's been well publicized that he has negative statistics with his U.S. shippers these two runners that he brought over for the Belmont Oaks and Belmont Derby it just felt like they were cut from a different cloth than the horses that he's brought in the past these are legitimate group one level horses in Europe and uh, I figured that they'd be able to perform well against their American counterparts here. I unfortunately did not think that way. And I said, I'm fading all Aiden O'Brien's horses. I know they're going to take money. And I think the stat, the old stat before he had the three in the Breeders' Cup that ran first, second, third was like two for 52 or just some absolutely obnoxiously crazy stat. I've been such a fan of Plum Ali, but I just thought that maybe the distance here was not going to be one to her liking. And I was just looking through Colin Lima. I'll ask you a question here. Flavian Pratt versus Irad Ortiz at a, uh, let's say a Keeneland meet where neither of them have really the barns, who would you take on top? That's a tough one. I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, Irad has connections with a lot of stables that race there. Um, But uh, just from a riding ability standpoint, everything being equal, I think they're very close. Uh, Flavian Pratt has really impressed me with Mm -hmm. some of the rides that he's put forth and some graded stakes that we've seen all around the country over the past several months. So, uh, you know, he doesn't get as many opportunities as Irad does to compile the wins and earnings that uh, that he does on the East Coast. But I I think Flavian Pratt is a rider with a lot of ability. Uh, For for me in here, I just I was looking at Colin Lima. I, I took higher truth on top. I thought, man, you're going to look so dumb when Chad Brown wins at nine to one, 10 to one or whatever with a horse with I, with a Irad Ortiz on. And I just thought, or I'm sorry, uh, Jose Ortiz. 
And I just thought the last win, sure, it was an allowance win, but in case for some reason a horse like Santa Barbara just doesn't seem to run or Ryan Moore comes over and they just don't seem to run well or gets a bad trip, higher higher truth just to me seemed like the one I wanted in here. Yeah, it's funny with the power of a stable. I mean, higher truth is the kind of horse that for a different barn, uh, not one of these powerful turf barns, uh, could be 20 to one in a race like this because she just didn't have the form Mm -hmm. credentials that a lot of others had. But you do have to respect the fact that Chad Brown has a stable of horses that probably could have run in this race. And he chose this one. So uh, she was likely to do well based on that alone. Uh, And uh, yeah, just getting back to Santa Barbara a little bit, who I landed on here. I mean, the other thing about it, and you kind of cited it with those Aiden O'Brien statistics that he hasn't done well over the past several years. But I was looking up the stats in Formulator, and you can kind of rank all of his past runners by the odds that they went off at. And something shocking that I found was over the past five years, Aiden O'Brien had never started a horse in the U.S. that went off at odds lower than 7-5. to five. So actually, these two horses that he wow. started on Saturday at Belmont were the two shortest prices, priced horses that he's run in the U.S. over the past five years. So that just kind of adds to that idea that these are a lot better than the horses that he's brought in the past because he has run a lot of long shots in this country. For me, it is higher truth for David at Santa Barbara. Let's see which Aiden O'Brien stat comes to fruition here right now. And they're off in the Belmont Oaks. Invitational. And out for the lead from that inside post is a Conlima Spanish love affair is right alongside in second. And then it's the Zuner on the outside in third. Higher Truth down at the rail runs in fourth. Santa Barbara is in between horses in fifth. Cam's mission on the outside in sixth. And then at the back of the pack, Serona and Plum Alley. As the field goes around the clubhouse turn. And it is Cone Lima with the lead. Ran the quarter in 24 and three-fifths seconds over this uh, good turf course. Cone Lima taking the field to the backstretch. Spanish Love Affair is in pursuit in second with Higher Truth down at the hedge and racing in third. On the outside is Nazuna in fourth. Santa Barbara, the favorite, is fifth at this point, four lengths from the lead. Then it's Gam's mission on the outside and at the back, Serona and Plum Alley. It is Cone Lima. Ran the opening half mile in 51 and one-fifth seconds. It's Con Lima by a length. Spanish Love Affair in the white cap right there in second. Higher Truth is on the inside. And Nazuna is alongside. Santa Barbara remains in fifth, about three and a half off the lead. On the outside is Gam's Mission. Down at the hedge is Serona. Plumelli continues to trail three-quarters. 116 and 2 as they begin the run into the far turn. It's still Con Lima holding on to the lead here. The lead's a half length. Spanish Love Affair second by a head. On the outside is Nazuna in third. Just off the front three is Higher Truth in a fourth. And Santa Barbara is in between horses looking to move now on her outside is Gam's mission. The field comes into the stretch. It is Con Lima, Spanish Love Affair, Nazuna on the outside, Higher Truth looking for a way through. Gam's mission is now coming on. Santa Barbara looking for a way through as they come for the 16th pole. Con Lima, Higher Truth, Santa Barbara now with a late surge here at the end. They're coming down for the finish, and Santa Barbara did it. Santa Barbara, the winner of the grade one, Belmont Oaks Invitational. And then number five, Santa Barbara gets it done 90 was the buyer, 430 was the winning mutual. Nice pick on top here. And uh, Aiden O'Brien, man, I mean, when I saw this horse explode, I said no one's catching this horse. 
No, I mean, when she actually found Rue, the mm-hmm. race was over. But I think there was a lot of drama for a while about whether she was going to get out of that uh, that traffic trouble at the top of the stretch because Ryan Moore looked like he had ridden her a little bit too confidently. I mean, he didn't have that many options coming to the quarter pole because he was just kind of locked in, boxed in in traffic. But he was able to find that seam at about the 316th pole. And once she found daylight, she just took off and had finishing speed that the Americans simply couldn't go with. Uh, the margin was a half length, but she was much better than that than that over this field i was just looking even at the incrementals fin- finished in 2264 a couple others i mean finished in sub 23 but i mean even for higher higher truth i mean when this one found daylight as well i'm like okay it's a mass race and i blinked and the race was over yeah, I mean, it was a race aside from Santa Barbara where the second and third place finishers, I think, did so well because of the trips they got. Uh, Flavia and Pratt and Jose Ortiz worked out perfect uh, trips on these horses, hugging the hedge the entire way. Obviously, Cone Lima was allowed to set a pretty pedestrian pace up mm-hmm. front, and Higher Truth was slotted right in behind her the entire way, and saving ground is so important, especially when they take the rails down at Belmont Park, and you can get right down on that hedge. That's often the preferred going, and uh, they got through, but once uh, Santa Barbara got through as well. Uh, they, she was just in a different league than those horses. I will say this with the other horses finishing right behind Gam's mission, uh, Sherry DeVoe. I'm looking for Sherry if she's going to have a lot of runners this Saratoga meet to really kind of sparkle. And I'm not saying a top 10 finish, but looking for her to really have a much, much better meet than she's had in the past. And then Plum Ali, I think it was a distance thing. I think that a little bit of a cutback here, she gets right back to it. She's obviously Breeders' Cup eligible and wanting to be in a Breeders' Cup race this year. And I'm super excited to see what she can do going forward as well. Yeah, Gam's mission, I think, had a legitimate excuse in this race. She was about three to four wide around both turns. That's not ideal in a race like this. And uh, Plum Ali, again, I mean, the pace was slow as we kind of expected it mm-hmm. to be and she was at the back of the pack throughout and just couldn't really produce that same turn of foot that we saw out of her going shorter maybe it was a little bit of a stamina thing that she couldn't come on at the end of this race and some other horses ran away from her a little bit but i think that they're both runners that could do better in the future gam's mission i think she got the distance that the trip was the wrong thing and plum Ali, maybe some slightly lesser company and the cutback's going to help her Let's move on to race number nine from Belmont Park. It was at the Belmont Derby Invitational. Great. Won $1 million the first mile and a quarter here on the turf as well. Another Aiden O'Brien. Is that where we ended up here as well, David? No, I actually took a little bit of a shot against this Aiden O'Brien horse, and once he got knocked down to even money, I felt a little better about it because I kind of figured he'd be a bigger price than Santa Barbara, but sometimes uh, better see a, a connections be successful once, and you feel like, okay, well, if one was successful, the other one's probably going to run well too, and uh, Bolshoi Ballet, he, he did get really bet down in this race. I liked his European form. I certainly respected him. I thought he figured to bounce back from the Epsom Derby. I kind of figured, though, that the American three-year-olds in this race were a little bit stronger than the American three-year-old fillies in the Oaks relative to those European invaders. So I wanted a few of the Americans. I liked Hard Love a little bit. I figured he was uh, a pretty logical alternative. I didn't think he'd have much trouble getting the distance, and I liked his win against older horses last time. And I actually made my top pick, uh, Safe Conduct, who was a bigger price than him. And uh, I had liked this horse's uh, turf race, too, back when he went over Allowance Company. I thought his form was a little dirtied up after having run in that off the turf uh, Pennine Ridge last time. So I thought there were both horses that could run well in here uh, just in case Bolshoi Ballet was unable to bounce back from that Epsom Derby debacle. I think this race was super, super interesting. Obviously, I was trying to avoid both of the Aiden O'Brien runners. I started to look at DuJour, but 
I feel like for me, anything that is coming out of Bob's barn for now, I just want to give a couple starts to, and if they beat me, they beat me. Not, not saying just for what happened overall from the Derby, but just, I don't know what's going on with what horse where and whoever. And, you know, I know Mott's got a couple. I know Pletcher's got a bunch. I ended up on hard love. I feel like Jonathan Thomas, every single time I look at this guy's stats, he's 20 plus percent at every single media ever as at. And I think he's one of the undervalued turf trainers, even though it always shows a high 20% turf uh training percentage i just think that everyone forgets about him because they see there's three chads in the race and then here comes jonathan thomas at eight to one and he wins the race by four or five and everyone's like why don't i have this horse in the ticket yeah no jonathan thomas does a great job and uh he's a a trainer that can be a little bit streaky at times and he's been having uh, an excellent 2021 season especially over the past three or four months or so he's compiled a really nice win percentage he's been uh winning at a a high uh, roi so uh he's a trainer that i think you really do have to expect when the barn is going well something that i found a little bit interesting uh johnny v we know he doesn't ride day in day out anymore but ends up on tokyo gold what do you feel when you see Johnny t- jump on some of these mounts? I feel like it's kind of like the East Coast version of Mike, of Mike Smith when he jumps on a horse that everyone seems to like, okay, maybe he's like a middling horse, but then we see a top jock jump on it. It's like, okay, is this one really a contender or not? Yeah, I don't make too much of it. I know that a lot of these Hall of Fame riders like to have mounts in the big races, and I'm sure there was an open mount on Tokyo Gold since a lot of other riders were married to specific connections or horses. So, uh, you know, when you're looking at the riders that are left out there to ride your horse, I mean, why not take a Hall of Fame rider like John Velasquez? So I I don't know if it'd make me upgrade the horse necessarily, uh, but it doesn't hurt to have a nice rider on board. Four. David is number three. Safe conduct for me is the six hard love. Let's see if Aiden can go two for two here in the Belmont Invitational right now. And they're off. Saint Hood goes right out for the lead. Hard love is right there on the outside. And now moving through at the rail is safe conduct. Up close on the outside is cellist as these three-year-olds move into the clubhouse turn. And it is hard love who goes on with it and grabs the lead. It's hard love in front. Safe conduct down at the hedge, and on the outside is Cellist. And then it is Dujour, who is racing in fourth. St. Hood is now back running in fifth. On the outside is Hidden Enemy, next in sixth, followed by Bolshoi Ballet, who is seventh, seven lengths from the front. At the back of the pack are Palazzi and Tokyo Gold. The opening quarter went in 24 and three-fifth seconds. And now they're moving up the back stretch. And the leader is Hard Love in front here by a half length. Cellist on the outside is second by a length and a quarter. Safe Conduct is third by a neck. On the outside is Dujour, who's in fourth. Now Bolshoi Ballet moves up in between horses into fifth and continues to gain. Sainthood is down at the hedge. On the outside, it's Hidden Enemy. Then comes Tokyo Gold and Palazzi is the trailer. The half one in 51 and one. Hard Love setting the pace here and leading by a neck. Cellist on the outside in second. Then it is the trio of sainthood, safe conduct in between. And on the outside is Dujour. Then comes Hidden Enemy. Bolshoi Ballet is t- down towards the hedge. 
and about four lengths from the lead, and Bolshoi Ballet is being asked for more now by jockey Ryan Moore. Then comes Tokyo Gold, and Palazzi is at the back. Three quarters went in one seventeen and one. They come off the turn and enter the stretch. Here is Cellist on the outside of Hard Love. Dujour is now moved into third. Bolshoi Ballet is on the outside and joins the front runners, and then it is Tokyo Gold, and now there's a sixteenth to the finish. Here comes Bolshoi Ballet to take over in deep stretch. Bolshoi Ballet has won the million dollar Belmont Derby. The number two Bolshoi Ballet gets it done. 410-86 buyer. Tokyo Gold almost springs the upset, and I say almost. Was probably never getting to this one, but Aiden two for two, and I love the stat you gave out. I think now when Aiden has these horses at lower odds, we really need to uh, make sure we're double checking and seeing exactly what's going on in the odds board. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if he changes around the program in the future because it's like uh, the light bulb has almost gone on and he realizes that he's got, uh, you know, horses to pick up these pretty substantial purses in the United States. And he definitely sent both of these horses out to win. Whereas in the past, it feels like he sent some of his B and C string or even D string horses to these races and has just been hoping uh, to get some black type with them, not really viewing them as win candidates. Uh, so definitely a different scenario with these two that he sent over uh, to uh, this year's Belmont Oaks and Derby and Bolshoi Ballet. He ran well to win the race, kind of an interesting horse to watch get ridden by Ryan Moore, because unlike Santa Barbara, who was in the bride, the entire race and just kind of waiting for Ryan to push the button. Bolshoi Ballet had to be motivated almost the entire race to mm -hmm. kind of hold his position. And you could see Ryan Moore after the race in his interview, if you're watching America's Day of the Races with Maggie Wolfendale, uh, just express a little bit of frustration that the American riders didn't create any gaps. They went so slowly <laughs> and just were constantly backing down the pace. And he kept getting shuffled back on this horse and trying to motivate him because nobody was making a move. Uh, and uh, once they got into the stretch, he was finally able to get him to the outside. And credit to Bolshoi Ballet. LA. He's one of those horses that you kind of have to keep pedaling on, but if you do so, he finally picks up, and he was hitting his best drive when they crossed the wire. I would tend to think this one maybe, I would almost say, would want even a little bit more ground the way he ran, but I would also say that the other Aiden O'Brien, for me, was just a little bit more impressive overall. Oh, yeah, I would totally agree, mm -hmm. and I think I was wrong about the assumption that I had coming in, that the American Phillies were weaker than the males. I think it kind of proved to be the opposite. I mean, the Oaks actually turned out to be the faster race. A horse like Con Lima, who I was a little skeptical of, she proved that the big figures that she earned during the last couple of starts were no fluke at all. And in this Belmont Derby, a couple of horses that had come in off big figures off and perfect trips, horses like Hard Love and DuJour, they weren't really able to back up those performances. Maybe it was the distance, maybe it was the wet turf course, but they didn't really show up in here. And as you said, the two European horses dominated this race and I agree with you, Bolshoi Ballet seems like a horse that could certainly stretch out in distance and uh, he didn't get it in the Epsom Derby but I think it's clear at this point the excuses that his connections offered were legitimate. Well I think as well and this is why you know having the uh, DRF just for the PPs in general and just having these closer looks, it was Coolmore's only runner in the Epsom Derby and for people who don't watch a lot of European racing, that's a very very telling thing for me and it made the decision for me harder to play against this horse I think overall, when I talk about the two horses, DuJour and Hard Love, I think Hard Love's race was kind of ugly. And DuJour, I think it's the first time for Mott. And I'm not too worried about, you know, maybe the horse never does get back to that American turf. But I think uh, only falling six or seven buyer points short, I think we'll have to see this one have a future in the uh, coming up in the fall and maybe even the winter. 
Yeah, sometimes horses get great trips and just don't run. And I think that was the case with Hard Love. I mean, he was up on that slow pace. It looked like he should have been able to spurt away at the top of the stretch, uh, given the trip that he got, which was very similar to the one that Cone Lima got in the Belmont Oaks. And he just kind of fell apart. And sometimes horses aren't able to run their A race on a given day. Maybe it was the turf course. Maybe something else was bugging the horse. I mean, we're not going to talk about the victory ride, which is the stakes that was run right between mm -hmm. these two. But you had both favorites in that race just kind of randomly not show up. One got eased. The other uh, significantly regressed off her prior form, seemingly with no excuse. So sometimes you just kind of have to throw your hands up in the air and move on. And I think that was one of those performances from hard love. Let's move on to the last race, race number 10 from Belmont Park. Made in special weight, seven furlongs on the turf. It was an all-turf day. What do we like in here, David? So this is one of those races where I narrowed it down to three major players that I'm not saying anything too enlightening uh, there. I mean, because they were the three favorites uh, in the wagering, uh, those being Ranger, Fox, Migrate, and Deregulation. And typically in these cases, it's my inclination to go against a horse like Ranger Fox. As a trip handicapper, uh, he's a horse that's run well in two career starts, but I would use the term... Um, exposed with him his form is exposed at this point because he's gotten those great trips and run well and you basically know what he is at this point there's nothing hidden about the races that he's run uh whereas horses like migrate and deregulation you kind of felt like okay things didn't go perfectly for them in their respective debuts so they do have some upside but something that i've been trying to get myself to reassess a little bit when these horses that have good form and have that exposed form actually win is to kind of assess what the relationship is from a form standpoint to those horses that have upside and with ranger fox he had run really well in this last race. I mean, you, no two ways about it. The mm -hmm. horse that beat him, Soft Power, was a first-time starter for Chad Brown. That looks like he could have stakes in the future. Uh, he's probably going to run an allowance race first, but he was really impressive winning that race. And Ranger Fox was setting an honest pace, and he just kicked for home. And he was simply better than Migrate that day. He was coming out of the same race. Migrate was just a little bit green. And with Ranger Fox, he's clearly as a horse that was doing very well right now. He had already handled a course with some given it last time, so he was somewhat proven over the surface and even though it's my inclination to kind of take the more interesting horses i ended up going with ranger fox because i just wanted to respect what he had already put out there and typically what he put out there is good enough to win a race at this level one of the main reasons i, I picked this race too is because i just see it seemed i saw the race same as you ranger fox migrate deregulation and for me when i made my own personal odds line it's if i have three contenders it's quick and easy and quick easy dirty for me it's three to one nine to two and six to one uh, are what I make them on the odds line. So I need nine to one, six to one, and about, you know, four, four and a half to one to be able to make some win wagers. And when that doesn't happen, you just have to pass the race. And this is why I think making an odds line is so key and would help people so much. People just don't want to take that extra, you know, even it takes five minutes, especially if you just do it for every race, it gets really, really quick and easy to do. And you can just go in there and, you know, Barry Meadows books, he literally gives you exact and daily double, you know, little price guides on if you like a three to one, a four to one, this is what your minimum $2 exact should be. And I've been using that for the last couple of weeks now. And I've really seen my handicapping. I may not be finding as many winners, but I realize when I, I hit two out of 10 races, I'm crushing, you know, the exact or a daily double into it. And instead of losing for the day, I win a couple, you know, 15, $20, which for having a small bankroll like me and only playing, you know, dollar exotics, I mean, that's a big deal if I can do that, you know, a couple of days out of the week to build up a bankroll for Saratoga. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point you make about knowing what your fair price is on every horse. And whether you work it out in a spreadsheet mathematically or you just kind of do some mental math, uh, you know, some people are better at one than the other. It's good to have that reference point for what price you want to get on certain horses. And in this race, you know, I'm not going to advocate that people go out and bet three to two shots in every race. Mm -hmm. But you could argue that three to two was not the worst price on a horse like Ranger Fox, because this is one of those races where there were about half the field was tough to make a case for about half the half the horses in this race looked like almost impossible to win. And personally, I was not a big fan of the fourth horse that was taking money in this race. Eversting went off at five to one. So I really did think it was among those three favorites. And I just could poke holes in mind grade and deregulation. Bill Mott had awful statistics with second time starters and turf sprints. That was a negative on my grade and deregulation. He had one of those trips where uh, you could make a middle move into the race where he made a middle move into the race. And that's typically something that you want to bet back. But if you look at the trackist numbers, which I like to do, his middle move was into the slowest part of the race. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't want to give him too much extra credit for that. And Ranger Fox just made so much sense. I mean, I would also say this and not just to poke holes in the the other two horses but like for migrate closing into a fast pace okay that 76 is more like a 72 now that makes it the horse look even uglier and deregulation coming out of the 11 post i'm really starting to focus more on where the post positions and making sure that oh i need a i need a stalker or a closer well if they're in the 10 11 12 post you know they're going to be coming four wide in a two-turn turf race not that you know that's what this was being only seven furlongs but focusing on the post positions i think has really saved me money in either Abling to eliminate horses or just make them, you know, not the top pick, but second or third. So when they go off at these weird, you know, three to one, four to one prices, I can just eliminate knowing that I'm just not getting fair odds on them. Yeah, and I was more looking at this race from a multi-race standpoint. For instance, if you're playing the late pick five sequence at Belmont, you know, this is not the kind of race where I would want to use all three favorites in equal strength. You want to uh, differentiate a little bit mm -hmm. and press one harder than the other. And this is a situation where I really would have pressed Ranger Fox more and de-emphasized migrate and deregulation, trying to make the sequence as thin as possible because it wasn't one that figured to pay a significant amount if you thought both Aiden O'Brien horses were likely to win. It's a consensus pick here in the race number 10 from Belmont. Me and David on the number three, Ranger Fox. Let's see if he gets it done here right now. And they're off. Deregulation and ever resting. Go out for the early lead, but they are quickly joined by Beckenbauer. And Beckenbauer is now in front. My boy Colton splits horses to take second. Out on the inside is Ranger Fox. And on the outside is Ever-Resting, who is moving up a few spots. And comes Migrate in fifth, deregulation to his outside. And at the back of the pack are Big Castle. And can you hear me now? The quarter over the good turf in 23-2. and two. Big long shot Beckenbauer is in front by two lengths. Ever-Resting second by a neck. And Ranger Fox is down on the inside and in third. My boy Colton, deregulation, and Big Castle, they are all together, followed by Migrate, who gains ground on the extreme outside. At the back of the pack is Can You Hear Me Now? The half went in 46-2. and two. It's still Beckenbauer by a length and a quarter. Ever-resting, Ranger Fox, they are second and third with a Migrate, Continuing to advance on the extreme outside, deregulation is asked for more, and Big Castle is down at the rail. The field is coming for the furlong marker. Now Beckenbauer drops back, and Ranger Fox has taken over. It's Ranger Fox in front with Migrate in second. Ranger Fox and Joel Rosario, uh, they are going to win here very comfortably. Ranger Fox, 
by almost five. And the number three Ranger Fox does get it done, paying 5-10-85 buyer. I think when you just look overall at the whole field, that last race being at seven furlongs, being on a fast pace, big buyer, kind of easy now when you look at after the race that this one seemed to almost be an easy single in some points. Yeah, I mean, that last race on Belmont Stakes Day was just totally legit, and he ran it back here. And the funny thing about this race that you could see watching it was, you know, Joel Rosario obviously was very familiar with this horse at this point, having, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ridden him in his two prior races. And you could tell right from the start, he never thought he was losing with this horse. I mean, he was unbothered when Gary Richards, that uh, rider on the long shot Beckenbauer, was kind of hellbent on getting to the front end, as he always seems to be on every horse that he rides. And (laughs) Joel just let him go, didn't care about it, sat in behind, wasn't really concerned. And once this horse was peeled out at the top of the stretch, he was just vastly superior to this field. It's it's so interesting, too, with deregulation who ran third. This is the second race in a row where this horse has been on the outside gate. I'd love to see if maybe this one can get a little bit more on the inside. And also for Chad, I mean, having Eric and now Manny on this horse, I mean, they're definitely not the top riders for him for the barn. So I kind of wonder if maybe next time when we get the inside draw, we see someone like an Irat or even a Javier and just be like, Maybe this is the one where now they're finally going for uh, going for the money. Yeah, it's, you know, Andy Serling used to do a show called Trips and Traps, which he put out on YouTube mm-hmm. and talked about certain horses that had trips, but some are worth betting back and some are not. And for my money, deregulation was a trap in this race because uh, he had made that middle move that wasn't really a middle move last time. And he just had no punch at the end of that race. And it was kind of the jury was still out on whether this horse had any ability at all. And I think he proved in this race that you know, he really didn't run that well first time out. And maybe it was the turf course that he didn't like, but he took a step backwards in his second start. And these Chad Brown horses, if they run decently on their debuts, they typically don't regress second time out. So this is one that I'd be a little bit skeptical of moving forward. Second place migrate. I, I, we, had, we had the trifecta in this race. Obviously, it doesn't pay anything with it being the, the three chalks, but this one declined a little bit too, down back to a 72. I just wonder if overall, when we look back at this race, Ranger Fox might be, Maybe not maybe the best horse out, but I think we're gonna see a lot, not many winners come out of this race and maybe Ranger Fox will need a couple before he breaks the allowance level. But I think he's very interesting having lost to that Chad Brown horse earlier on. And I just wonder if uh, with soft power, I just wonder if Ranger Fox maybe down the road might be a listed stake, you know, maybe even a grade three type. Yeah, I guess it remains to be seen. I, I think it also, uh, you have to wonder what's going to be the right distance for him because he's not going to be able to go one turn seven furlongs everywhere that he runs. They only do that distance at Belmont. So if they want to run him at Saratoga, they're going to have to kind of decide between five and a half furlongs and a mile, mile and 16th. Uh, you know, John Terranova probably has some options given the way that he rated in this race. They might be able to stretch him out in distance. He's just, he's not just a pure speed ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think that he's a horse that could turn out to be pretty good because he won this race decisively. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. I want to thank my special guest, David Aragon, for spending some time with me on this Monday before the Saratoga meet starts to heat up. David, where can people find you on social media to talk to you about all things Saratoga and Naira in general? You can find me on Twitter at horse to watch. Uh, feel free to tweet at me to criticize any lines you want or make <laughs> comments about my analysis. I'm happy to, to field all of it. And if you want to follow my Saratoga analysis, you can get that on uh, naira.com slash timeformus. Thank you so much for coming on. Yep. Thanks for having me. Special guest, David Aragona. This show is my production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's present is Pierre Thomas Forentale. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.